Hello and welcome to another episode of the Life After Cardiac Arrest podcast with me, your host, Paul Swindell. Okay, today I'm speaking with Dr. Kainty Dainty, who's a research scientist at uh, in the medical field. Um, you've got a big, long list of uh, jobs that you've you've done and uh, positions that you hold at the moment. Could you tell me a little bit about those? And welcome, Kainty. Thank you very much, Paul. Um, sure. So I have a I hold a research chair in patient centered outcomes at North York General Hospital. And I'm also a assistant professor at the University of Toronto in our um, health management policy and evaluation faculty. So um, we do a lot of applied uh, health research about uh, systems and patient outcomes and how we can measure what we do in the healthcare system in a way that uh, reflects what's important to patients. And this is just covering Toronto, is it? Or does it cover the whole of the Canada, what you do? Yeah, so I'm also part of the Canadian Resuscitation Outcomes Consortium. And so um, most of my work is actually across Canada and international as well. Um, but my positions are with just within Toronto. And understand that a couple of your uh, major research projects are understanding survivorship following sudden cardiac arrest, patient and family perspectives on life after death, and the bystander support network which is what I particularly want to speak to you about. But um, could you tell me a little bit more about the understanding survivorship following sudden cardiac arrest? What's that about? Sure. So um, I became really interested. I'm a qualitative social scientist by training. And so um, um, that's what my PhD is in. And I became very interested in um, what happens uh, to survivors of cardiac arrest and their families after they get discharged from hospital. Um, I've worked in the resuscitation field for quite a number of years, and I really noticed that we don't, we had, we weren't paying much attention to, um, to that life after, uh, type, uh, journey. And so, um, and that really is very qualitative in nature. Um, and everyone's is very different. Everybody's journey is very different. And so I've been working now for about the last five years with survivors and family members to, to help um, understand what that's about and use that information to hopefully improve um, the interventions that we can use in the healthcare field to help patients and families, you know, make that journey a bit, a bit better, a bit easier. And, um, and the bystander network sort of is a, is part of that as well. So I also became very interested in, um, what happens to people who respond to cardiac arrest. So those who give CPR at the scene, who may be strangers, they may be family members. Um, it depends where the cardiac arrest occurs. Um, but they also, um, I always like to say that the ambulance comes along and uh, and picks up the patient and potentially the family, and then the bystander is sort of left there wondering what just happened, and uh, and not really getting much uh, follow up or um, information after that. So we created the bystander network as a virtual uh, resource for people who respond to cardiac arrest as a way to get some trusted information, and we're hoping that it can start to be a bit more interactive, and we might be able to um, to start to form some groups and, and uh, in-person type things as well, because everyone, whether you're a survivor, a family member, or a, a bystander, needs support after after cardiac arrest. It's a fairly traumatic event, and um, we haven't done much to support people, and so that's my area of interest. Well, that sounds very laudable, what you've been doing. And uh, 
what what had you been experiencing what what initially when you started looking at it five years ago what did you think about the the life afterwards bit the, the post-discharge care what what was being done um in Canada at that time yeah yeah so in Canada and <clears throat> I'm, I'm a little bit familiar with some of the international um uh care as well but not as familiar with as with Canada of course but in Canada, it's it's very variable. It um, you know some patients go to cardiac rehab a, a certain percentage. Some patients do get followed um, by a cardiologist, particularly obviously if they get a, a defibrillator implanted, the the shock, the thing that gives your heart a shock uh, if you need it. Um, and um, and then some people are just just charged to go home because they are quote unquote normal. They score normal on the all of the uh, neuro scales and their heart is is uh, recovering and their brain is fine apparently according to clinical uh, tests and so off they go but what i quickly learned um is that uh then everything else comes into play so um you know obviously and you know this better than anyone paul as a survivor yourself but um fatigue uh concern anxiety Wondering what uh, what you should do with this uh, new life you have, um, changes in relationships. Sometimes um, some people are very empowered, some people are very disempowered, uh, and so it, there there's a lot going on there. And um, and so this is something that I don't think prior to about five years ago there was much attention to. Um, and even if you talk to some of the clinical folks, cardiologists and people like that, they'll say, well, they're fine. Their, their heart is fine. They can go on and do it, you know, whatever they want. But there's a psychosocial piece to it that is huge um, that we really need to, to work with patients and families, survivors and families to understand better. And uh, on the flip side, the, <clears throat> the bystanders, it's the same thing. We think people um, can walk away from saving someone's life without, you know, any thought to it. And yet um, people lose sleep. They also develop um, uh, depression and anxiety um, about what happened. Again, sometimes they're empowered and sometimes they're disempowered. And how we can develop um, support tools for people in both situations is, uh, is become very apparent to me that it's very needed. Mm-hmm. It, it sounds very similar to the UK, and probably as I said, you got you got experience worldwide as well. Is that your understanding? How it is most countries or most developed countries? Yeah, I think from from my my great colleagues around the world, I, I understand that it's pretty similar. Um, yeah, you know, whether it be the UK or the United States, um, developed countries, as you say. Why is it, do you think, that it's just taking, well, it's just about now or the last few years that people are starting to look into that uh, aspect of the of the uh, scenario? Yeah, I think probably because certainly in Canada, there is great fractures or gaps in the care um, systems. So we have pre-hospital care, we have hospital care, and then we have community care. And sort of they all operate very separately. And so once you, um, you know, once in the pre-hospital setting with the ambulance and the EMS uh, services, they take care of you and then they bring you to the hospital and then never do the pre-hospital folks find out what happened in the hospital. So very rarely are we able to share the um, survival stories um, with the pre-hospital folks. And then you get taken care of very well in the hospital. Um, And then we discharge you and then we 
we, we put you out the door and we don't talk about what happens to you after that system. And, um, and so I think that, um, you know, that trajectory is quite stilted and there's an expectation by each phase of that system that the other one's just going to pick up and take care. But that isn't always the case. And particularly in Canada, the community system, once you're discharged, is very overloaded and very under-resourced. And so um, usually uh, patients and survivors and family members have to seek out their own care in that system. And that can be very overwhelming when you've been just discharged from the intensive care unit. <laughs> and so um, so I think the problem is, is that there was a, you don't, each system didn't know what it didn't know about what was happening on the other side. Uh-huh. It sounds similar in, in some ways to the UK, but I mean, we've got the NHS, I'm sure you're aware of it. Is there a similar uh, concept in Canada? Um, it is similar. So we have a single payer system as well. Um, uh, but it is, um, I think, I, I, and you can correct me about the, the NHS system, but I think I think Ontario is starting to move to something more similar to uh, the NHS where within a, within a trust uh, there are several pieces of the healthcare system. Is that correct? So, so like a hospital and a community care system might be partnered together. Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, I don't really know much about the workings, but I know there are trusts around the country. Yeah, there's yeah, a- I think that's kind of how that works. And so, in those situations, I think they can work quite well because they're more closely aligned or working together. Until we get there, we're moving to something like that. But right now, um, while we have a single system, I always say that that's a bit of a misnomer because it's not actually a system. <laughs> it doesn't work. It doesn't function like a system. So I'm sure maybe people in the, in the UK would say the same about the NHS. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, just for a couple of uh, stats, what, what what's the population of Canada and, and how many cardi- out-of-hospital cardiac arrests are our um, experience there, do you know? Right, yeah. So um, we have 40,000 cardiac arrests a year in Canada. And uh, we our survival rate, it runs between 10 and 15%. Oh, wow. That's pretty pretty decent then. Yeah, it's not bad. It's, um, I mean, it's lower in some, you know, average. It's lower in some places and higher in others. Um, we haven't quite hit the Seattle numbers of 30%. But, um, but uh, yeah, so that's... On average, we have about 40,000 a year. Uh-huh. I mean, in the UK, I'm sure you're probably aware, so it's below 10%. It's about 8.6, the last official figure I think I saw was from 2014. It might have gone up. Um, they're making a push to push it upwards, but uh, with C- CPR mandatory in schools now. Uh, oh, that's wonderful. Well, I think it's this year or might, might be next year. Um, but, yeah, it's good, but it sort of does bring us back to the uh, – what the topic was about, people giving or lay people giving CPR and the repercussions of that. Um, you, you talked about your uh, your bystander CPR network. Mm-hmm. Um, could you just sort of tell me how it came about and, and what what it does? Sure, sure. So, um, so as I was saying, you know, one of the one of the things that was always of interest to me as well is that um, there's always a big push and you just mentioned about a big push for training more people, training more people to do CPR. And that, that's a wonderful thing. We, everyone having even a little bit of training, even five minutes of training is, is important because it increases confidence. But, um, but, you know, to ask people to call people to action in that kind of situation, particularly strangers or, um, or even 
it, it's sort of different if you're a stranger versus if your spouse or your brother or your sister, um, you know, drops of a cardiac arrest. Um, to, to call someone to action to save someone's life is is a very big deal. And so while, um, you know, we, we take people and we train them, you know, we, maybe they go for four hours or something like that and they, you know, do some course on a mannequin in a, a temperature controlled room on a mannequin that's lying on the floor that is perfectly clean and, um, you know, doesn't have any, uh, you know, breasts or any, uh, doesn't have hockey equipment on or whatever the case may be. I think over the years, we've done a bit of a disservice. Um, and I say that with all due respect, because certainly CPR training is, is very, very important. And, and many people have worked very, very hard to bring it to where it is today. But I think that we need to evolve it in the sense that um, it isn't, doesn't really represent real life very well. And what sometimes happens is, is that we train people, but we don't train them for what's actually going to happen. And, um, and on the, on the other side, we don't train them for how they're going to feel at, or we don't talk about in training how they're going to feel afterwards. Are you saying it's all a little bit clinical, really? It's not, it's all, uh, as you say, it's all nice and clean and you've got, just got a dummy. I mean, what, what do you think should be done then to make it a little bit more perhaps realistic? Yeah. I mean, I think there's, there's lots of things you could do, you know, there's, um, there's, uh, you know, more, you could make more realistic type um, mannequin situations, you know, sitting them inside of a stall in a bathroom, <laughs> um, you know, or in an airplane seat or in a chair and then having to move them down. I mean, what, what mostly causes people to not want to respond is those kinds of situations. And so we know from other fields like uh, sports and coaching and um, even in business, the more um, – normal a situation seems, the more you sort of get that muscle memory, so to speak, about being able to react and it won't seem as as scary. I mean, even the the situation where when someone is having has had a cardiac arrest and and they're quote unquote not breathing, we know that they actually do do this thing called agonal breathing, which makes them kind of go <gasps> kind of like that. It's almost like a like a gasp. And so that can be mistaken for breathing quite often. And we don't really talk about that at all in the courses. Um, people might may mention that people will be breathe, um, doing agonal breathing, but we don't, we don't reckon, we don't teach people how to recognize that as actually not breathing. And so many, some new research is coming out to show that many times the reason that CPR isn't enacted more quickly is because people didn't re- recognize right away that it was a cardiac arrest. And, um, and so things like that are really important. Um, uh, you know, even sometimes people will uh, foam at the mouth sometimes when they've had a cardiac arrest or they may even vomit. Um, I'm not sure if we want to put vomit on the, on the, um, on the mannequins, but um, those kinds of things, even like I mentioned, things like breasts. Uh, some people are very um, worried about uh, giving, there's actually been research by Audrey, a colleague of mine, Audrey Bloor at Duke, that showed that women get significantly less CPR than men. And our hypothesis is because of um, the, the intimacy of it. And um, we've moved away. One of the big changes I think, which is huge is that the guidelines now uh, do not recommend mouth to mouth in adults. So it's chest compression only CPR is, is uh, uh, recommended. And that's huge because one of the big barriers we used to hear about was this idea of mouth to mouth and and doing that in a stranger situation? 
Mm-hmm. So I think removing that has has helped a lot to to encourage people to be able to pound as hard and fast as you can on the chest. That seems a bit easier to do than to actually put your mouth on someone else's mouth. Um, and so those kinds of things. Um, other colleagues of mine are doing some great work with virtual reality and um, and some of that kind of training, which puts you into a real life scenario um, and and gives you that, you know, heart pounding kind of feeling so that you can uh, learn to react in that situation. So just a few things that I think we could do to make it a bit more realistic. Yeah, yeah, that sounds some great ideas there. I like I like the the virtual reality one. And there's a I don't know I think it's the Resus Council in the UK have got a a website. It's I don't I'm not sure if it's virtual reality, but it's a it's a film that you control as you go along and you make decisions and the characters do different things depending on what you say and how you react. Uh, that that could I, I would imagine be extended into actually. Um, having some sort of three, three D or not three D, um, you, you actually been linked into a resus Annie somehow, but yeah, that's, that's where the future is going, hopefully. But also I was really interested to hear the fact that you, you said that, um, they don't really talk about or don't explain or demonstrate what agonal breathing is. Cause that's, uh, like you say, is quite key. Yeah. Yeah. And they may, you know, they may mention it, uh, but to actually, you know, even to, um, <clears throat> I mean, there are mannequins which are very, very high end, which have a lot of computer um, animation and things in them. Obviously, the average CPR class doesn't have those kinds of mannequins, but even our tape recording of agonal breathing doesn't, I, to my knowledge, doesn't ever get played, you know, so that you can hear that noise and, and appreciate. I mean, whether or not you remember it in, in, this, in the situation is another story, but um, you know, it's just pe- something people aren't familiar with. And I know that when we talk about um, dispatcher-assisted CPR, another thing that's really helped with encouraging people to do bystander CPR is that when you call 911 or what's the uh, the equivalent in the UK? 999. 999. Uh, and you get a dispatcher on the phone. This is almost worldwide now. The dispatcher will coach you in, uh, in providing bystander CPR. And that has been so helpful. But one of the things they're really struggling with is when they say some of the first initial questions they ask is, is the person breathing? Mm-hmm. And if you're gasping and I say yes, the dispatcher doesn't immediately jump into giving you CPR instructions. So there's a delay. And uh, so we, that's something we really need to work on fixing. Yes, yes. Uh, on, on my website, there was a Sudden Cardiac Arrest UK website. I've actually got a page on agonal breathing, which is uh got a couple of videos well, it's got a description about it but it's also got two videos one's a cartoon it's not any real agonal breathing thankfully yeah. uh, and uh someone doing a very good demonstration of it actually uh, an actor simulating it um and if anyone wants to go and have a look at that i do and it's quite it's actually strange uh, when i first put it up i didn't realize how popular that page is going to be it's uh it's quite surprising actually but Terrific. yeah yeah, I think people just, you know, it's, um, people just need to see it, to hear it, to feel it. And it's the same sort of thing. And I think that, um, I mean, it will never replace the sort of traumatic situation that you're in. We can never sort of replicate that per se. But, um, but I think this kind of vanilla, a cleansed antiseptic kind of training that we're doing needs to change. And, you know, I also often say that, um, 
as I, as I say, training is important. Uh, and I think everyone should get it. Um, but what we, I think a mistake that we made, you know, 30 years ago plus was um, making people think that they have to be a card carrying member with some kind of um, official thing that says that they're able to do CPR. We often see that is that people um, uh, don't want to get down and help because they don't, even if they have or have not been trained, they don't think they know what they're doing. A lot of people still feel it's a very medicalized act and, um, and that only health professionals can do it. And so there's a lot of misconceptions around it. And really anyone can get down and push hard and fast. That's my, my cocktail party line is that um, anyone can get down. Uh, my seven-year-old daughter can do CPR. Um, and so it, anything that the person, the person is dead. And so anything you do improves their chances of coming back. If you do nothing, it's a hundred percent chance they will not come back. So it's, um, it's that kind of, I think, encouragement that we have to give people to, to empower them, uh, to be able to do CPR and to not be afraid of what might happen. And that's sort of what the bystander support network is about is providing people that kind of information. The information that's on our website is, it was created by, um, the steering committee uh, that I work with, which is largely uh, bystanders and survivors and family members of cardiac arrest. And so um, uh, that, you know, we tried to, to word the information in such a way that it's accessible and that it makes sense of the kinds of questions that we hear uh, instead of just being, you know, sort of like a textbook, a bit more like, you know, why was the person blue and uh, can I hurt them? Uh, what happens if I break their rib? Can I be sued? Um, that kind of information to try and give people a, 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 a sense that it that it's okay. You you need to get down and help, uh, and you will not get in trouble or hurt the person if you do. Yeah, absolutely. It's sort of dispelling some myths and uh, giving some uh, sort of I don't know safety factors or feel not feel good um, comfort factors that they're not gonna do any damage because they say oh, i'm not trained to do it um and it's going to be these, these ex- events are, are very well as we've already said are, are very traumatic and scary situations and uh, i don't think many people actually step in do they do, do you know what the sort of rates for bystander cpr is yeah the sort of standard um quote that we give is about it's only about 35 percent of the time uh-huh so it's quite low really isn't it that's across all cardiac arrests, so not just ones that happen in the home, uh, because actually 75% of cardiac arrests happen in the home. Only 25%, and those are rough numbers, um, happen in public. And so even um, I just spoke with a woman the other day whose husband, uh, she was running late. She happened to be home. He came out of the shower, walked into the bedroom, and collapsed. And she ran out and went and got their neighbor and rather than walking over or, you know, going over to him and starting CPR because she didn't think she could do it. Uh And so, and we know that, um, for every minute that CPR is not started, you lose a 10% chance of surviving. Indeed. Indeed. So it's crucial that it starts right away and, um, and that anybody gets down and and starts pumping on the chest. You you said the, uh, the rate is 35% across, um, in home and outside of home. Do you know, is there a difference between are, are strangers less or more likely to do CPR than someone you know? Um, it, it, it's about the same. 
Yeah, there's not there's not a great difference that you that you would think. Um, I think that sometimes because we see that um, in some cases, uh, as particularly in the cases of the elderly, um, the spouse is of the same age usually, and sometimes that's problematic because just from a um, a perspective of being able to actually physically do the CPR, um, and then in this in the public setting. Um, it's, um, it depends on the situation. So, you know, it's, it's, and, and in today's day and age, um, you know, I think people, sometimes I say, I feel badly that people are more likely to pull out their cell phone and video the guy lying on the ground than they are to actually go over and see if he's okay. Yeah, it's true. (laughs) And so that's, I I don't mean to make such a negative statement about society, but, (laughs) um, it seems to be the way. So, um, so there's, it's the same, but for different reasons. So, so on, on your, going back to your uh, bystander network, can, what, what was the uh, URL, the, the, the address of that? If, if anyone, anyone yeah, so it's uh, bystandernetwork.org. And is that just for Canadian citizens or Toronto citizens? No, no, it's, it's, it's meant to be, it's, I mean, it was developed in Canada, but it's meant to be universal. Okay, cool. And so uh, is, is the, um, what can you, do you have to join it or what is the publicly available? Yeah. So everything is publicly available. You can look at the whole site without joining, but there's also an opportunity for you to submit your name and email address to receive information. And to, um, so we, some, every once in a while we send out sort of newsletter type things, or we also, um, sometimes send out opportunities to participate in research, which of course are completely voluntary, but just uh, notices about research projects people might want to get involved in. Uh-huh. And you, you mentioned to me before that you're going to be conducting one quite soon. Yes. Yes. So um, uh, one of the things that we have in common is a, a, an interest in the use of social media and uh, for both survivors and their family members, as well as um, as bystanders. And so looking at how people use social media to connect with peer groups um, uh, and people like themselves to share information. Uh-huh. Is, is this something that's used within the Canadian health system at all? Is there anything mandated for patient peer support not. groups? Yeah, it's not. And um, I, I have yet to hear of um, uh, a formalized peer support group. I think people kind of figure, you know, kind of small local things out perhaps. But um, the, the, the biggest one that I've heard of is your uh, your Facebook page, of course, as well as we have one. Uh, that I belong to that's m- a bit more international but but lo- localized in the U.S. Um, that's very similar as well. Um, and that's more for survivors and, and family members. Uh-huh. So the bystanders in that case may be the family members, but it, I don't know that it's marketed entirely to um, to bystanders or, or people who help. Um, and now I know as well you have one for chain of survival as well. So that one would be excellent for uh, for bystanders to look at as well. Yes, yeah, Chain of Survival UK, uh, if you're in the UK, uh, obviously. But uh, as uh, Katie says, it's uh, similar, I guess, to your bystander network, but um, it's on Facebook and it's uh, sort of like an offshoot of our main group because we were getting uh, quite a few uh, partners and lifesavers join us and they were feeling a little bit left out, really. <clears throat> and I, I think uh, I've, I've seen you quote it and I've used it before that, uh, sort of a phrase saying they're the, the forgotten patient, as it were. 
Yeah, I just actually we just submitted a um, a proposal to for some funding as well to look at the um, the idea of for um, family members, uh, spouses, and family members of cardiac arrest survivors looking at that what co survivorship means, and um, and you're, just to your point about it being quite different uh, for them, and so it's really important that they have a space that they can they can feel safe into. Exactly, and do you think that includes the survivors, or do you? Th- think it works better if the survivor isn't totally involved? I think it's good both ways. We did a, we are just finishing up a study and, and going to publish a paper soon where we did what we call dyad interviews. And we interviewed the survivor as well as their, their spouse or family member. We interviewed them together as well as we interviewed them separately. And uh, it was very interesting to us that we actually um, heard very different things depending when, if they were together or separate. And so, um, and that's what led us to, to develop this other proposal about looking more closely at the, at the spouse and family member experience. Um, because I know many of the survivors I've talked to, you know, as they're so appreciative of their family members and their spouses and they're, you know, very happy to obviously have them in their lives and terrific support. But in terms of understanding each other's experience, um, it's really quite different. And so, uh, so trying to tease that apart a little bit. <clears throat> So what, what sort of things did you hear that are different between the two groups? Well, I think one of the main things is, is that usually the survivor, um, particularly someone who has had a very good outcome uh, with no sort of, uh, you know, brain injury or anything like that um, uh, or loss of function, will say, I'm good. I'm great. I'm perfect. I'm back to normal. I'm back to work. Everything's great. And then we speak to the spouse or the, particularly the spouse, sometimes the family member and, uh, you know, son or daughter, and they'll say, mm, not quite, you know, his memory isn't what it used to be, or, um, you know, he fatigues easily, but he won't admit it, um, you know, things like that. So that's sometimes interesting, you know, perspectives. Um, and you could, uh, you know, unpack that tremendously from a psychological perspective for sure. Um, one of the other things that we hear sometimes is that um, survivors will have a, um, a carpe diem kind of approach to their new, their new lease on life. You know, they realize that they died and they've been given a second chance. And so they almost have a bit of a personality change. And uh, on how you deal with that as a spouse in particular um, is, is interesting because now you're you know, living with someone who has a completely different outlook on life and, and may or may not, which may or may not include you. <laughs> <laughs> and so that can be, um, that can be really hard to navigate. Um, and uh, sometimes it's positive and sometimes it's, it can be very difficult. So looking at some of that um, and also how to kind of deal with your own concerns as a spouse or family member about it happening again. And that can be very um, anxiety provoking, allowing your uh, loved one to go to the store by themselves in the first little while or to go somewhere to the park or go for a run um, by themselves and not, you know, be, be panic stricken the whole time that they're going to drop somewhere and you're not going to know is, is, is a fairly common thing we hear. I mean, uh, one of the sort of uh, prompters for me talking to you was... Um... An article that I saw just recently, and uh, it was all about performing. It, well, the title was very uh, eye-catching: "Performing CPR can save someone's life; it can also cause you trauma." And 
<clears throat> and 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 one of the quotes from you within it was uh, we need to be more tuned in to supporting lay rescuers so h- how do you think um, we could be more tuned into them yeah i think i think one of the things that should be almost universal is that um and i i i say that this could sit within the ems or ambulance services only because they're very well uh, informed about about what had happened on the scene they're the first ones there is that um, some kind of follow-up or debrief, even if it's just a phone call, um, you know, 24, 48 hours afterwards, and then referral to more services if needed, whatever it might be. Anything, even as simple as that, I think is is what we should be doing. I think folks, um, and sometimes the, the bystanders that I've spoken to don't actually realize that they've had some impact until about three, six months later, when they're not sleeping well, or they they can't stop thinking about the situation but they didn't realize that it was having such an impact on their life. But at the same time, um, a very good colleague of mine, Paul Snowblin, who is a um, uh, paramedic in the Peel region here in Ontario, he's developed a follow-up model where in their particular region of the province, he follows up with everybody who is on the scene of every cardiac arrest. So he calls them, he invites them to debrief, and he has a critical incident debriefing um, strategy that he goes through with them allows them to talk about their experience and provides them with any kind of, he's not a psychologist, but provides them contact with psychologists um, and other mental health follow-up if they feel they need it. And that has been hugely successful. And um, we actually published the model um, uh, about a year ago, uh, describing what it is that he does. And um, we're about to publish some of the results this fall, but it's, um, it's incredible the kinds of things that he has been hearing about, um, about how people feel. They're very concerned about whether or not they did it right. Um, whether or not they did CPR right, whether or not they hurt the person. Um, they really would love to know, um, if it, uh, worked or not, if the person ended up surviving or not. And, And we know there are a lot of factors that happen in between when they get taken from the scene and whether or not they survive. But, um, that kind of feedback and um, and he works through the scenario with them so that he can, he can empower them to know that they, what they did was right. And that seems to go a really long way for them to be able to hear that, you know, what you did was really important. Yeah. I, I can imagine that. That's, that sounds fantastic. I'm quite uh, excited to hear the results of his uh, study. Is, is this the one that's in the Peel region? Is that right? Or yes. Ontario? Yeah. Because um, yes. I, I saw that on the internet, and I thought, "Oh, that looks interesting." Huh. So, yeah, yeah. No, he's the only one that's doing that kind of program that I've heard of in my travels. Um, there may be others around the world, but I, um, I haven't heard. Uh, I have for for the particularly for the bystanders. So that is specific to um, bystanders and witnesses. Um, um, I'm also conscious that we've been using the term bystander and we do use the term bystander um, on the website because it's a quite recognizable term internationally. But we've had a lot of discussion with my colleagues around the world about the implications of that actual word, that it actually means to stand by (laughs) as opposed to do something. Exactly, because you're anything but a bystander once you start doing CPR, aren't you? (laughs) Right. And then we also have to be conscious that there are people who witness cardiac arrest and and do not respond. And so, but we have been trying to move a bit more towards using a lay responder uh, language. 
Um, but I even forget myself, as you can tell. <laughs> um, but um, uh, because it is just a bit more active. Yeah. So his model is called the lay responder support model. Oh, OK, I'll, I'll look out for that. But I, I did come across another study that sort of said something similar to what you've or his his findings about. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it. I'm sure you probably have the one done in Norway. Um, by Matthewson, where he was saying that um, providing CPR have been emotionally challenging for all lay rescuers and for some consequences in terms of family and work life. And they, he talks about the essential persistent mental reoccurrences of the incident. Um, but people who had some sort of uh, knowledge of a, a deeper understanding of what CPR does uh, tended to... Um, experience less uh, trauma from it and where people have been spoken to been sort of given a debrief if you like that again that that seemed to help a lot so i think what what you guys are or what this uh was it paul um is is doing sounds like the right sort of thing to me yeah i think it's um you know, in some areas, obviously, they have a lot more cardiac arrest than others, but I think it would be something that um, EMS services could, uh, you know, incorporate into their offerings that would be a great community support. Um, and uh, and certainly, you know, would, incur- I think, encourage people to to reach out and, and talk to someone as opposed to sort of suffering by themselves and not really understanding what happened. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it should be almost mandated that anyone who's sort of, involved with a, uh, an event should sort of have at least a debrief and then if, if they further need it maybe uh, some sort of uh, counseling or something mm-hmm. for sure um it uh, i have a friend and um colleague in new york uh sachin agarwal i think actually you saw him in in sweden when we were there together as well he um has a follow-up clinic for cardiac arrest survivors um, and so, um, and he has found that that's been tremendously helpful in terms of helping people to work through, um, you know, what happens after discharge. And so it's, it's a very similar type of philosophy really is, is that, um, you know, there's no shame in needing to just even talk to someone about what a cardiac arrest is and what happened. I mean, sometimes if it's in a public setting in the moment and the guy beside you on the subway platform drops, you don't even know what it is that happened. You just know they're not breathing. And the answer to that is CPR. And many people don't even understand the differences between cardiac arrest and heart attack, for instance, or, uh, you know, other things that might be happening. And so um, even in providing information, and that's part of why we, we built the website is that at least it's a, it's some information giving for people about, um, you know, what a cardiac arrest is and why CPR works and why it's important and um and and those kinds of things you know trusted information because sometimes when you google things in the in the healthcare field it can get you off onto some very nasty tangents <laughs> you can <laughs> um so trying to provide some trusted information about um about what's going on a lot of questions not as much in canada because we we have something called the good samaritan law and i believe the uk has it as well where you cannot be sued for helping someone um, in a, in any situation, but particularly in a cardiac arrest, but in some other countries, which are a bit more litigious, like the U S uh, that still remains a concern as well. And so trying to, to debunk some of that, that mythology as well is really important for people. Uh-huh. I mean, I guess all of that sort of stuff could be part of the CPR training as well. I'm guessing that 
people don't get told those sort of things when they go and learn CPR. I know some t- some sessions are only like half an hour or 40 minutes, but um, it, it does need to be perhaps put in a in the real world context, as you were saying earlier, uh, a little bit more. And I think there's sometimes there's a bit of fear, um, you know, some CPR trainers I've talked to about the potential to also address the fact that, you know, you might feel traumatized after this. Um, and some of the CPR trainers I've spoken to have had been reluctant to bring that up in a training session. And I can understand that we don't want to scare people off from actually performing CPR, but I do think there's a place to talk about it in a, in a positive way to just make people aware that, um, doing something like this can be very impactful and, uh, and that they should, um, you know, think about uh, talking to friends and family after it happens. At the very least, what things can do you advise people to do if they are fear, if they come to your bystander network and they uh, they say they're experiencing nightmares or, or whatever? How how can you help them? Yeah, so we do have a, a section on the website where people can submit questions or um, their story or you know reach out for support. And certainly, we um, we are not uh, you know therapists or we are not uh, clinically. Um, uh, able to, to help people, but we do, we do highly recommend that they seek out help, um, starting with talking to friends and family, and then um, obviously more professional services if they need it. So that's the number one, um, the number one piece. We're actually just about to launch a, or to place a, a thing on the website that, that um, is very clear about that, that, you know, it's, it's something you should talk about, not something that you should think about by yourself on the couch. Um, and, um, and to, you know, um, if you were trained, go back and talk to your trainer about, um, about what happened. And one of the things we've also thought about starting to do is to get people who have actually done CPR in and out of hospital setting to become trainers so that they can share that kind of real life information. Um, as much as we love and, uh, and cannot survive without our CPR trainers, Many of them actually actually haven't responded to an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest in real life. And so trying to incorporate um, some of those folks, if they're willing, uh, I think is would be a really neat way to uh, to share that information as well. Yeah, that sounds a great idea. Um, in, in my group is a lady who actually, uh, she's in New Zealand, not in the UK, but she actually had a cardiac arrest in a CPR training session. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I don't know if the uh, the CPR trainer had done it on a real person before, but I know there was a little a little bit of a panic because the AEDs that they had were uh, the dummy ones; they weren't a real one. Yes, yes, yes. But yes, and there's a lot of um, you know that's that's the other thing we talk a lot about the CPR, but there's also the AED piece as well, right? And and uh, being comfortable with that and um, and using those as well if they're publicly available too. So. There's, there's a lot that we assume people will be okay with. And I think we got to stop making those kinds of assumptions. Uh-huh. With, um, you, you mentioned on your uh, bystander network um, website that people can submit their stories. Is there somewhere that um, they're, they're publicly available? Can people, other um, CPR givers or lay rescuers um, can read what other people's experiences have been? Yep, uh, definitely. So we had it up for a little while and we just pulled it down. Um, actually, it was a while ago we pulled it down. We need to get it back up. Um, we were trying to find a better way to to make them available. So we're trying to figure out a more visually appealing way. We had them in sort of a scrolling system 
and that was making it hard to read. And so I'm just trying to work with our web designers, but yes, so they will be available for people. Uh, And that was the idea is that, you know, by sharing stories that we can, we can see ourselves in others and, and share our experience. Yeah, I think that's very powerful because I I know there's a lot of people in my group who just um just read other people's stories and they get they get a lot of comfort from that. So just uh, just sharing helps a lot. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, and it's um I think there's a lot to be said for storytelling and um and many of the folks that I've talked to said that once they met someone, you know, whether it be a, another survivor or another bystander, um, it sort of everything changed for them and they were very, very happy and, and felt that that was really a helpful thing. So I'm sure you must hear that among your members as well. And indeed a lot. Yeah. When we first, uh, when I first arranged a meetup, which is like, uh, five years ago, four years ago now that it was a very small group and there was roughly half and half in survivors and, um, lay rescuers. And we sort of naturally just sort of paired off in the survivors and the, uh, the rescuers and and afterwards my wife said you know it made her feel a bit more normal normalized the situation of 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 all the experiences and feelings that she was going through so and i've heard that so many more times since then um so yeah you're you're dead right it just and that one of the things i should always do a plug for it but in a couple of weeks time we've got a a big meet up at the end of uh in rutland which is in the middle of england and we we've got over 100 people attending that which is uh, survivors and um lifesavers uh, and hopefully we were going to have a session where people can peel off and survivors can chat with other survivors and rescuers can chat with other rescuers so hopefully a lot of that will be going on yeah that's wonderful yeah it's um it's amazing to me i would say like 95 percent of the survivors that i talk to have never met another survivor and so it's so good to have these opportunities for people to connect. And so I, I, I would say the bystanders probably about the same. It's quite high that they, that they don't, um, they don't, you know, in their day-to-day life, don't, uh, don't interact with someone who, who has also responded. And so it's really important to, um, and even, you know, the health, there is a, obviously a group of healthcare providers who may be off duty or, you know, on vacation or whatever that, that end up witnessing these things as well. But, but their training in their situation is quite different. And so, um, you know, they can still have uh, trauma, um, but their, uh, their ability to deal with that can sometimes be a bit, a bit different. And so, um, so it's, it's interesting from that. So even talking to other healthcare professionals isn't always enough. Okay. Um, so where, where do you see the sort of, uh, we're going to go in the next couple of years with regards to um, bystander or not bystander, lay rescuers, sorry. <laughs> What 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 can happen? How can we make things better for for them in a across the world, as it were? Yeah, well, I think that you know, I think we could make great strides in in like I said, in improving how we train people and incorporating some of that psychology into it. Um, again, not to scare people off, but to empower them and and give them the tools that they need to to actually be um, strong strong responders. Uh, I think that's huge. Um, and then on the flip side, you know, um, making models like Paul's um, more uh, uh, widespread, uh, having that be the norm or mandatory, as you mentioned, you know, um, uh, something that we do for people. Because I think um, I, t- I was talking to Richard Price, who's the founder of PulsePoint, uh, the PulsePoint app that, that crowdsources help for cardiac arrest. And he said he always has felt a bit 
um, bad about calling people to action and then not actually providing anything for them afterwards. And so I think that's kind of what we need to to keep in mind is that we owe these people something for their tremendous heroism. And so, um, so I, I would like to see that, um, you know, us move in that direction as well. And then certainly, I mean, you know, resources like the Bystander Network or the Chain of Survival Facebook page and, and things like that to to develop to a point where they're they're fairly commonly known within the community and they you know they're they're already quite easily accessed through the internet but but you know that that's a if it's nothing else but to um we I've been talking to a few of our EMS agencies about even just handing out a business card that has the website on it because obviously there's a lot going on at the scene but if it's as, as simple as just a message a single message that sends somebody somewhere where they can get some help. Um, I think that that could be, uh, you know, something mm-hmm. we could easily do in the next couple of okay. years. Okay. Uh, it's been a really fascinating 50 minutes of, uh, of your time. So I, I really thank you for all of that. And, uh, hopefully there are going to be a few more, uh, studies and to prove, uh, the problems that, um, uh, rescuers have after cardiac arrest, uh, not after doing CPR, sorry. And, that, um, things or the, the powers that will be will start to put these things into action especially in the sort of training of the cpr because i think that's the sort of a, the obvious point to sort of put it in really to teach people up to start with um so i thank you very much katie and uh, hopefully we'll get to chat again soon and i might meet you at another conference who knows yeah yeah no that would be great thank you very much i really appreciate your um your support for the bystander support network and uh and thank you for all the work that you do with the survivor group as well it's uh it's incredible and uh, i look forward to seeing you soon okay thanks a lot bye-bye